Good day, my friends, and welcome to the new Craig Shapiro Tennis Podcast. Today's show is brought to you by the legendary Sergio Tacchini, the brand made famous by Martina Hingis, John McEnroe, and Gabriella Sabatini. Check them out at SergioTacchini.com and use the code CRAIG30 in all caps to receive 30% off of your order. He was born and raised in Washington, D.C., and in addition to being the tennis writer for the New York Times, he is the senior editor for Racket Magazine and the co-host of the podcast, No Challenges Remaining. Ben Rothenberg is today's guest. You ready to do this, man? I'm ready. Are you in D.C.? I am. And is that where you are? But that's not where you're from. That's where I'm from. You, that's where I'm born and raised. So why the Philadelphia Flyers connection? Oh, my dad was a Flyers fan. He went to college up there during their glory days. Gentleman you hear is the tennis writer for the New York Times. He is a prolific in tennis. Uh, he is an important contributor to Racket Magazine, uh, amongst other things, and is the co-host of the podcast No Challenges Remaining, NCR podcast. That's Ben Rothenberg. Hey, Craig. How you doing? My man, thank you for uh, coming on the show. Um, how have you been holding down during this uh, bizarro moment? Yeah, I think doing okay for the most part, um, as well as could probably be hoped for. I mean, I'm considerably <laughs> less employed than I was this time of year ago because I normally would be at the, uh, at the French Open right now and at Wimbledon after that and sort of in the middle of what usually is like nine or ten weeks in a row in Europe uh, between the clay and the grass swings. Um, but, you know, staying here, trying to be, you know, at peace with the world and everything, and I think doing a pretty decent job of that at, at home. So can't complain too much. And it's kind of nice, you know, actually getting off the uh, getting off the hamster wheel a bit and having a, a summer at home for the first, even if it's very at home right now with the uh, with the quarantine, it's still sort of a nice change of pace. As as you know, we do a five-set format. Uh, the first set is the off-the-court report. Um, you're in D.C. What has your, you know, I guess, 12 weeks been like since Indian Wells canceled? Uh, you never made that trip. I was packing for that trip when it canceled. I was in the process of taking clothes out of the dryer and getting them ready to go in my suitcase. And I got an email I think it like probably around 9 p.m. on that, that sun, Eastern time on that Sunday night uh, before Indian Wells that it was being canceled. So I, you know, wrote a story about that cancellation for the New York Times, just sort of a breaking news type story. And then I um, stopped packing. And then I, uh, yeah, and then I, you know, uh, sort of sat around in my apartment for several weeks, about a month, <laughs> and uh, didn't go out much. Got some groceries like a couple days after it canceled and more or less just rode those out and uh yeah and then that, then i switched to to staying with my uh, parents for a while because i wasn't able to really see them without sort of quarantining with them and they have a you know somewhat more space at their house and they're in a less crowded neighborhood than my neighborhood in dc which is pretty urban so it's a lot easier to like walk around outside uh where they live so i've been at my parents house now for about uh gosh about like seven weeks now i guess how did your writing obligations adjust, change, disappear, appear. Dis disappear is definitely the closest word to what happened. Um, yeah, like I said, I did that story about the tournament canceling for the New York Times. I think it's the last New York Times story I've done. 
since then, I believe. I, I sort of started working on one or two others that didn't materialize, I think, ba barely. Um, and I've been writing, you know, I'm working on a couple things with Racket, uh, did something for their website uh, pretty recently, did a thing for the Washington Post about sort of sports books. Um, yeah, but but really, I mean, you know, there's not sports happening right now, so there doesn't need to be much sports writing happening right now. I'm sort of, you know, I it made sense to me when a lot of papers sort of drastically reduced or shrunk or folded in their their sports sections of their papers right now because, you know, there's not there's no sports right now. So uh, to be uh, honest, uh, hearing yeah, you yeah. say hearing you say this kind of just gave me the chills. Um, somebody like you, I feel like you're almost Teflon that you would keep it popping and um that isn't the case you're you're sort of when the when the tour stopped a lot of your work went with it yeah and look i think that also has to do with my personality i think if i'd wanted to sort of force more content and like really dive into like doing nostalgia pieces for places that would take them i could have but i just didn't want to do that i was i was sort of not in the mood i, I was i have not I've, you know, like I said, my sort of previous answer of being pretty fatalistic about where sports are right now, it reflects sort of my work. And I'm not, you know, I didn't want to be in the place of just contriving uh, sports pieces to come up with. You know, when there are things that have happened, and same goes for NCR, like we have not really done, we did a book review episode about a book that came out 20 years ago. But otherwise, we have not done too many things that are like nostalgia things like, hey, let's look back at the 05 French Open or that great Rome final from 10 years ago or whatever. We have, we haven't done that just cause I, I, you know, I think that we're at peace with tennis not being here right now. And I think that we know it's going to be. And also I would say our listeners are not, you know, sort of clamoring for that stuff either. So at least that's at least my brand slash our brand on NCR is that we're not doing the whole, whole nostalgia thing. And, you know, there's only so many things you can write about, like how will it come back? I just think we're so far. And also the other thing is it's not really in tennis's control. Like tennis, to my mind, is sort of uh, beholden to whatever the science does, to whatever the, the politicians do. And so tennis is not in a position of um, really sort of creating its own destiny right now, I don't think. In a, in a Tennis in the meaningful professional level at which I cover it. Like recreational tennis or even some of these exo leagues that are popping up, sure, those will happen. But I, I, I don't find myself being very interested in those right now. Uh, to that point, let's move into our second set. This is what I call the on-the-court report. I want to talk about your impressions of the business of tennis uh, at the moment. Um, and I don't necessarily, we don't need to deep dive this. I kind of want to maybe go quick because it is all okay. pretty fatalistic, I think. But um, you uh, you were on a uh, a group chat with Patrick Muradoglu the other day. Um, uh -huh. what were your impressions of, of, I think you both kind of spoke to the fact that live tennis without fans feels like it can't happen. Um, can you speak to that? Well, I, I just think that compared to other, I mean, tennis is not a massive revenue sport for the most part. I mean, it is at some places, but for the most part, tour events are not. And so I think, the tennis would have a much tougher time coming back in a fan-free environment and still paying the players fully, let's say. Just keep everything the same but subtract the fan revenue or the on-site revenue, basically, which includes concessions and you know luxury suites and things like that. I think tennis would have a tough time making that math work out um, compared to other bigger sports like 
NBA, like NFL, like, you know, European soccer, like NHL even, uh, probably like baseball. Uh, and so I, I just don't see the tours as they are working. That I, I don't think that the math would work out that way. Um, yeah, that's, that's, that's basically the short version, I think, of what you're looking for there. Um, have you heard anything interesting with regards to the slam, uh, to the to the majors playing? Have you heard anything interesting with regards to anything happening of any interest? With the majors, uh, no. I, I can't say that I've heard anything that you probably wouldn't have already heard before. Um, you know, I think they're still waiting and seeing. I mean, the U.S. Open uh, is taking some time, I think, fair to say. I think, uh, which I think is their total prerogative. I'm, I'm glad they didn't sort of rush. Like, Wimbledon, I think, because they had the insurance also, probably canceled much earlier than it probably needed to uh, in the calendar. Or then it, that it could have waited longer, but they didn't choose to wait, which I think is also fine and good. U.S. Open is being a little more patient, so I think that's positive. Um, but really, I don't know. And again, we don't know, and they don't know what the, what you know New York is going to look like in September, what the country is going to look like in September, what international travel is going to look like in September. We don't know any of these things yet. So uh, I'm glad they're being patient. I'll say that. But uh, it's tough to know what exactly is uh, what exactly the future holds. Is there any? Have you learned anything interesting about? a potential move to Indian Wells. I mean, I all I've heard is that that's all that was all dead on arrival stuff. Do, do you think that that kind of maneuver is still, is on the table that that they're staying that nimble? I'm sure it's been discussed. I actually don't I don't think that Indian Wells would be the best choice for second location if they had to move it out of New York. And I'm not sure if they would move it out of New York or not. Uh, I'm not sure why California would be much better, honestly, than New York, even though obviously New York has had more cases. But it's so hot in Indian Wells in uh, August and September that uh, I think that that's why they don't have the tournament there. That's why it's in March, basically, in what's technically winter, uh, because that's the only time of year it's really bearable to play tennis there. I think that it, I think that it could potentially move other places, too. Uh, Orlando, where the USDA has all its infrastructure down there, I think that could be a potential second location as well. But uh, but no, I have not heard anything definitive on on a move, and I I, I don't think it's gonna. I would be surprised if a move happened. I mean, I, my money would still be on it just not happening the tournament. But I'm glad they're taking their time and not rushing to that decision. Did um, you learn anything interesting from Patrick uh, when you when you were on that uh, when you were on that panel? I guess my, my sort of main impression was that talking with Patrick, um, and he was obviously there, you know, largely promoting his his league that he's setting up there at more Togaloos, is that you know, people in Europe are in a different position than we are in America. Um, and I, you know, as you noted correctly early, I'm relatively fatalistic or pessimistic about a lot of this stuff through my stateside experience. But I think people in a lot of parts of Europe are having a much uh, that Europe is doing a lot better in terms of bouncing back from this and containing it and getting testing and all those things you need to do to come back. Uh, Europe is beating the U.S. on a lot of those factors. So it's possible that Europe is doing well enough to the point that where, you know, the French Open in late September or early October, whenever they're putting it now, um, might be a real possible thing. I mean, so that sort of that, talking to Patrick, that was my main impression. Like, I really should. Keep in mind that not everywhere is doing as poorly as the U.S. is doing. You have um, you have a very vigorous uh, Twitter account. Vigorous, okay. I would say. Is that, sure. Yeah, I, that, that's that, that's the applicable word. Sure. Popular, vigorous. You use it with real significance. Um, what is your sort of mantra regarding your Twitter? How do you? Is it just call it like you see it? Um, is it? 
is it extremely tennis specific or is it is it a fun thing for you or are you de- are you trying to disseminate information what is the sort of how do you use your twitter if you had to describe it uh sort of all of the above i mean it does stay relatively tennis specific i don't get into you know too many like larger like well because of new york times rules largely also i don't get into too many outright political things on there um but I, uh, yeah, I, I, you know, it's something that's, it, it should be fun. I obviously get lot, I catch lots of flack from various fan groups or the people who just decide they don't like me for whatever reasons as being a sort of relatively big fish in a pretty small pond that is tennis and when tennis Twitter, at least where my fishness is, is larger than it probably is in the rest of tennis world. Um, yeah, no, it's something, you know, I use it to, to share things to, that I think are interesting or I think people should see. And yeah, that's about it. I don't think it's, I don't think my approach is that unique per se on, on Twitter. I think that it's just sort of, um, it's what has sort of come naturally to me over the gosh, like nine or 10 years I've been on Twitter now. Novak Djokovic, what was the impetus for your kind of putting, you know, I guess the tennis world and tennis Twitter on notice with regards to, with what he's been doing? Yeah, you're referring to him talking to the guy. Um, I think that, yeah, I, I saw a clip of basically of their chat. I did not watch it live when it happened, but I saw a Twitter account that had uploaded a clip of uh, one of their things about the guy talking about water molecules and how you could change them with your positive thinking. And it, it just seemed like such clear nonsense that when I looked into it, I said, I saw Novak and this guy talking in this sort of pseudo scientific way about, you know, all the positive things that you can do scientifically with just with your with, with pleasant thoughts going through your head or concentrated thoughts or whatever you want to call it. Um, and yeah, I just thought, I just sort of, you know, you know, on my Twitter, I call things like I see them for better or worse. And this was clearly nonsense, vergering on dangerous. And this has come after Novak had already raised eyebrows with some vaccine skeptical comments a couple of weeks earlier. So, yeah, I, I think that no, and Novak said this to a, a big audience. I think there have been, by the time I saw it, something like, I might get this number wrong, but something like 400,000, 500,000 people had already watched this video of his. Had buzzed Instagram. through it. Yeah, no. And yeah. Just, and, so, and, and, so, and so that's why I sort of, you know, it, it matters what someone like Novak does with his platform. And, and, and for our listeners, Novak has been, most of you know, but Novak has been hosting Instagram live chats and he had on a sort of this new age guru, I guess, from Southern California who was talking about. I guess to some degree curing COVID and, and, and such with and being able to change molecules of water and with positive thinking and, and, and Ben kind of put him on blast for that. Uh, Roger Federer, um, he, did he, uh, wish a, uh, Rush Limbaugh type in, in New Zealand, a happy birthday. Is that what happened? In Australia. So this happened today. I, I was just sort of just following a little bit of this today. I don't know everything about this story, but basically there's a guy named Alan Jones, I think, uh, who is a, yeah, some sort of conservative Australian media personality who is very reviled by a lot of people down in Australia, apparently, and has said some pretty problematic things. Again, I don't know much about this guy. I had never heard about him before today. Um, but yeah, but I, Federer sort of sent him a very benign uh happy retirement message. I guess this guy's leaving his job and Federer sent him a message and 
a lot of people are getting upset about that. So I think that it's just sort of the the case. And I got a lot of Joko chants. I'm like, are you going to call out Federer too or whatever? Uh, so, um, you know, so yeah. So Roger made a video for somebody probably without, I'm guessing charitably, but I think also probably realistically without really knowing fully who this guy was. The, the video, very little, I'm guessing he was just asked to do it by somebody and didn't, and whoever set this offer up for him did not uh, fully appreciate the context of this guy and his and his career. So that's sort of my thought. I mean, yeah. celebrities get roped into these things all the time. There is something like, there is something yeah. interesting about this downtime that a lot of these these big time uh, athletes are have a lot of free time and they need to sort yeah. of be careful with their social media. I I, I suppose. Um, just quickly, uh, Basilashvili. Uh, do you have any interesting information on what's happened there? Just what we've heard? Not, not beyond what's in the Georgian reports now. And uh, the last thing was that Naomi Osaka uh, was announced in Forbes magazine that she's the highest paid female athlete in the world. Um, is, is there anything interesting to expand on that? Uh, not really. Just that it's not really a surprise. I think we all knew when she started becoming a star, and certainly when she won the U.S. Open, uh, relatively unexpectedly, and in such dramatic fashion over Serena, that there was a massive amount of you know sponsorship potential for her from Japan, and good for her and for her agents for capitalizing on that. I think that she's I think she's really the only sort of star, bona fide tennis star that's been made uh, in women's tennis, or maybe even in either tour in the last like 10 years. I, I think the tennis is at a hard time making new stars. Uh, obviously on the men's side, cause none of them are getting results. And I do think you need to win a grand slam pretty much to be a, a real star. Maybe you could argue that Jeannie Bouchard got close to that um, without winning a grand slam, without coming pretty close, making a final um, and a couple of semis. But yeah, um, I think that Naomi's has done well at being uh, someone who's sort of, and you know, through her own and also through extenuating circumstances on the U S open, I think made her a bigger, gave her a bigger platform than she might've had otherwise. Uh, so yeah, so I think, yeah, good for Naomi. And, and by, and, but yeah, and by the way, um, it, there is something to, at least to me interesting about the fact that, uh, Oh, women's tennis can jumps, jumps all the other women, women's sports oh, in yeah. terms of earnability. Uh, still, right? It's it's kind uh, of oh, completely. It's not even close. And women's tennis. I mean, women's tennis has been the leader of women's sports for a long time. I think they've sort of lost sight of that. I feel like they could have done a better job in the last, you know, ten years or so of not sort of of you know keeping their position of prominence. Because I do think that while it's still the biggest, I do think that at least in America, that like women's soccer during like women's World Cup will get talked about more than women's tennis does as a sort of phenomenon. I think people take women's tennis and women's tennis's success uh, for granted because it's been around for so long. But yeah, women's tennis is still, still the big money earner for sure in the women's sports world. Let's move into our third set. This is the portion of our show where we talk about your career. I guess my question to you is typically I ask, uh, you know, whether it's an ex-player or where their tennis begins. Um, I'm curious to know two things is where does your tennis begin and where does your writing really begin? Yeah. Um, tennis, I would just sort of watch it for, I mean, I, I played like with my dad, he, you know, played very recreational tennis. So we would just go do that occasionally um, at public courts nearby my house. And then, yeah. Um, 
so I would watch it on TV. I remember the first tournament getting into was when Venus Williams made the US 7 final in 97. And I watched a bunch of that on TV and thought that was pretty cool. She had the beads and everything. And she was young and sort of felt like a kid. And I was a kid. I'm, you know, several years younger than Venus, but uh, still relatively closer in age than other athletes had been at that point for me. Uh, and yeah, so watching watching that was got me into tennis for sure. And yeah, and then I went to, you know, some like very recreational tennis day camps during the summer and stuff like that played for my junior high and high school tennis teams at my school, not particularly well. Um, never had any sort of formal tennis training in terms of like lessons or whatever. Um, so my game is pretty hodgepodge looking, but I was sort of a, a junk baller and enjoyed being out there and playing and enjoyed watching the sport and enjoyed playing, you know, tennis video games like Mario Tennis and stuff like that. Um, so that was really sort of my origin as a tennis player. And then writing, I, I guess I liked writing for through high school, I knew, and then started just doing some blogging stuff on various topics uh, when I got to college and taking some writing classes there to so various things. Let me yeah, just back ahead. up for a second. You grew up in D.C.? Yep. Um, now, you know, I, 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 I see that you like – you know, I've seen the way you can buzz through these crossword puzzles and such. Um, were you like kind of a wordsmith right out of the box? Uh, I think crosswords are a different skill than writing per se, but I think that, yeah, um, I guess so. I think I could read at a pretty early age. I think I was reading probably by the time I was like four. I think it's earlier than most kids, I guess. Um, yeah, I'll go with that. Um, and you were, you were, uh, did you ever have a moment where you felt like this was, you wanted to become a writer, that you were going to become a professional writer? No, I mean, I, I don't think that instinct really came until probably honestly after I was out of college. Um, I didn't really know what I wanted to do writing career wise while I was in college. Uh, um, where'd you go to school? I, I went to Michigan and then, uh, I graduated in sort of what was still the, uh, you know, 0809 financial crisis. And so there weren't a ton of jobs available, even if I had known what I wanted to do. And so I, uh, first I wanted to go on like a foreign service I remember wanting to do, but then I didn't want to get sent to Afghanistan or somewhere else similarly unpleasant. Uh, so I, yeah, so I, I just sort of worked, had a couple temp jobs and things like that and blogged on you know, and minimized the window whenever a walk, boss would walk by basically uh, while doing those. And, yeah, um, and then the blogging sort of got some traction. It's a short version of it. Is, was the New York Times your big break? Would that be fair to say? Definitely. No, definitely. No, I had blogged for SB Nation before that, and then, yeah, and then the first sort of real established outlet besides SB Nation, which wasn't really that established back then, um, that I did stuff for was, uh, yeah, New York Times. So for the 2011 U.S. Open, I started doing some freelance stuff for them. So I didn't sort of go – on a traditional journalism trajectory where you sort of started a small local newspaper and then work your way up to like a mid-market one and then to like the New York Times. I felt like I sort of skipped a lot of rungs on the ladder uh, all at once, which made me uh, very sort of nervous and self-conscious when I first started there, for sure, about making sure that I was feeling like it was undeserved. But at the same time, you know, they were very positive about the stuff I was writing early on. They had a lot, they had their own sort of blog uh, areas on the Times back then. So I was sort of doing blogging for the New York Times uh, which sort of shifted into being a more of a regular newspaper reporter for them, freelance, uh, a couple couple months later. Exclu exclusively tennis, right from the beginning? Always tennis? No, I mean, I had done, I mean, it's never been, I've done, I mean, like 
98% of what I've done for the New York Times has been tennis probably, but I've done occasional other things for them. I, I know I did something pretty early on for them about uh, how you could get $1 tickets to Wizards games in DC for the NBA huh. team when they were doing particularly badly. Uh, so I think they, I got asked to do that story. And so I wrote a, a post that was too long. because everything I wrote is always too long, but it was like 2000 words. And what it's like to get a dollar ticket to a Wizards game. And uh, yeah, and then a couple of I've done definitely done a fair amount of hockey stuff for them now because that was the main sport I played growing up. I was much better at hockey than I was at tennis, and uh, and so I did covered you know the playoffs and they'd be in DC for quite a few years. And a and a Flyers fan, just to be clear, like we said before. That's right. That's right. And do you do you have love for the uh, for 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 the Washington team? No, uh, I definitely did not grow up being a fan of of DC at all. Their arrival of the Flyers, so. Uh, but I have had really positive experiences covering that team and with the organization uh, pretty much covering them. And the players have all been pretty good with me in their time. So I've gotten – I've definitely – you know, and it is true. Even being a big fan of one team, it's weird <laughs> how quickly when you're covering a sport, um, how fast – like – this goes for tennis players who are sort of the ones I enjoyed watching more too. How fast those sort of partisanships can fade when it's just your job to cover it objectively. Like it's, it's weird how detached you can get from it and how you see it from a totally different lens. Absolutely. Is there an interesting story about how you linked up, how you got the times job? Uh, I was in Cincinnati in 2011 covering, that's just a blogger. I was credential media there, but just for espionation. And there was someone there from the times, uh, Karen Krauss was there covering that tournament. And we sort of started chatting or got friendly uh, during that tournament. And yeah, I uh, was just sort of chatting with her and said, oh, you know, sort of offhandedly, if you guys need help for, you know, US Open or something, let me know. And she was like, yeah, sure. Here's, you know, editor, contact this guy who's doing the blog editing for us during the Open. And that was pretty much, that was pretty much it. So I owe, I owe pretty much all of it to, to Karen. How would you describe your writing style? I'm probably not the best person to to self-analyze on this because I don't tend to I, – I, I think I just try to kind of do what comes naturally to me. Um, I don't think I'm somebody who really goes for too many, like, flourishes in my writing. I think my writing is relatively, uh, hopefully, to the point, and the editors certainly help it get to the point a lot of times. Um, but I don't think that I'm somebody who – I like to think, at least for my articles, and I think people think this – opposite about my Twitter, which is an issue. But I do think for my articles, I leave myself out of them pretty entirely. And I try to anyway, which I think every writer, at least in the New York Times sort of position, probably should do. Um, so yes, I think they're relatively, yeah, sort of, I don't know. I don't think I have too many signatures in my writing. Maybe you disagree with someone who's reading me, but I, I just sort of, uh, yeah, sort of take the most direct line, hopefully, to whatever I'm trying to do, to sort of I just think zoom that, through things. I think that you tastefully move the right quotes into the into the program i think that you hit the good points um i've watched you in action sometimes from afar sometimes you know i was close to you at the australian open when you are mm-hmm. i just want to know when you're live tweeting are you additionally covering the are you writing an article at the same time sometimes sometimes i mean, it's, I, mean I certainly i certainly tweet about matches that i'm not writing articles about and I will occasionally write articles. This is more rare, but I will occasionally write articles for matches I don't tweet about. Um, if it's something that's, you know, like, for example, like, I remember last, this is not the best example, but it's the first one that comes to mind. Like, last year, French Open, I was writing an article on Christian Guerin, who had had a good, you know, clay season and won sure. a couple of titles. And I was doing a, a sort of first week kind of feature on, hey, here's a guy you might not have heard of who has an interesting 
journey to being a sort of clay, you know, contender on some level uh, in the ATP right now. But his first round match against like Opelka, I think it was, uh, was not a match that I was breathlessly tweeting about per se, because I didn't, I didn't think it was the most important match of the day by any stretch. Um, but uh, yeah, but I was um, writing about it that day. So usually, I mean, but usually, hopefully, if I have like a deadline for an article, at least the crunch time of that article, if the deadline is coming soon, will be focused on writing the article. I can do both at the same time pretty well. Um, and actually, sometimes the tweeting will help sort of organize my thoughts for the article. Oh, that's interesting. Um, but uh, generally, my priority is usually getting the article. I mean, the article is what pays me. So, I mean, that's my job. The, the Twitter is all sort of a, a bonus distraction or sometimes destructive distraction if it takes up too much of my time. So when you're on – so when you're at a tournament – you know you have an article that's gonna if you're if you if on Monday of the uh, Monday of the French Open, you know something's gonna roll out Tuesday. You know what's coming. You know what um, you have. Not always that lined up. Usually we sort of decide who's gonna write what either, depending on the time zone of the tournament, um, either like the morning of or uh, during or like the the night before. And so, um, and even that usually is you know a lot of if then scenarios like sure if there are no upsets we'll all do this kind of thing it's usually plan a but then like if serena loses that might ship someone will have to pick that up even that wasn't a match we were going to cover previously or going to focus on previously um and then you know different results can happen and different things can get sh uh shaken around a lot like you know like there was that one i mean the australian open this year was actually pretty boring except for one day from a news perspective, it was pretty dull except for one day when like everything happened. When Serena lost, when Wozniacki lost and got forced into retirement, I think Federer, I think it was the day he went five with Millman. It's like a lot of different things happened that one day. And um, so that was like a chaotic day where there were lots of different changes being made. And that was also like happening in a weird time zone. So you're dealing with different desks around the world and stuff. But, uh, but yeah, so we're, we're, we generally have a plan A going into a day. And then, you know, sports, obviously uh, – can produce the unexpected a lot of times so, so we adjust as needed so you stay nimble uh on those days when you're hustling around moving moving around from press conference to press conference to press conference mm -hmm. you're you're working hard generally uh, speaking generally i would definitely saying nimble i mean the hard work people can judge for themselves uh, I, I try to for sure and i definitely am you know i think people from the outside view our jobs as, oh it's great you get paid to watch tennis but that's I mean, going out to the courts and watching matches, I do not do very much at tournaments at all. I'm generally, especially for the first, you know, four or five rounds of a tournament, pretty glued to my desk at the media center where I can either get to press conferences quickly and interviews and other things like that. And I can also watch more than one match at once. Uh, going out to watch matches in person is something that really only happens uh, either really late in the tournament when there's only one match at a time. And I also don't have an immediate deadline or um, sometimes like late at night. Like if it's like, you know, U.S. Open and either I'm on the night match duty or I've already filed and just want to go watch something. I might go out and watch like whatever the last night of the night, whatever the last match of the night session is uh, in Ash. So, yes, I don't I really don't get I'm not courtside all that much. And also I've found that, like, especially with every court now having streaming capabilities at Grand Slams, I think. Um, the, you do not necessarily get a better sense of the match by being out there all the time. Certainly for things like discussions with the chair empire and things like that, 
you hear it much better on the broadcast than you do being courtside. And so things like I've mentioned it before, but like that 2010, sorry, 2018 US Open final with Serena, people who were in Ash, the stadium, had a much foggier sense of what had actually happened in that match with people who were watching uh, the broadcast feed. The broadcast spoke spoke much more to the, to the than to the people that were in the crowd. You could hear it. I mean, you could hear it was being said. If you were, you know, you could hear everything Serena said on the broadcast. And so if, you know, if you're in the stands, you probably don't hear that. And so even if it is, it, it is romantic to sort of be in the stands, you feel like you're there. And it can be useful for being out there for maybe like the first like five games of a match and getting some atmosphere um, for actually, especially if like a news, you know, heavy match like that match. It's really not the best place to be as a reporter. Which is frustrating, but I think it's I think it's true. When you write, do you turn the phone off? Do you have to like? Do you have a special thing that you do to like? I'm a very reluctant writer. I find I need to like turn every like I have to I have to really focus. Like I'm a kid doing a book report. Are you able mm-hmm. to just put your head down and just just to, just to the words just flow? Do you ever write anything like really um, bad? <laughs> well, I certainly do write bad things. I'm sure, but I think that. I'm pretty deadline driven as a writer. I like having deadlines. So if I have a deadline coming up, that, that focuses me, just having that deadline pressure, uh, which I haven't finished every day at a tournament. So that's kind of useful for me. When it's something like a racket, you know, magazine piece where it's a little bit more, uh, well, there is a deadline for that in theory, but usually I try to write, you know, that takes a longer time. Yeah, that can be sort of, it can be tricky being ADD and getting distracted from stuff and, you know, being stuck on Twitter or whatever other internet rabbit hole you're in at the time um yeah no certainly that can it can be tough fighting off distractions but at tournaments generally it's not so bad because it's a pretty there is some structure to the deadlines and, and knowing when you have to actually bear down and focus and once i do that i am pretty pretty quick on writing you know with deadline pressure uh racket magazine um is you know i've you know they really have um or one of the reasons that kind of worked me back into tennis, I got to write a couple articles for them. What, what, what who are they to you? Racket's been been awesome for me in terms of being a place that I get to really have, um, you know, a lot more space and a lot more yeah. freedom to uh, to dive into things that certainly would not fit. I mean, New York Times as being the main outlet, obviously, has been great and it's opened a ton of doors for me and it's been a great place to land. But it is relatively. You know, there's a, a pretty strict in terms of what, you know, is a New York Times article um, about tennis. You know, sure. it, they all fit they all fit into a pretty clear lane there. So, I mean, not and that's a pretty wide lane to be clear within that. Like I get to write a lot of pretty outside the box stuff for them. But like stylistically and lengthwise and things like that, like they're pretty uh, there's a pretty clear print. I mean, certainly I couldn't write anything. The longest thing I've ever written for The Times, I was like one feature. I did was probably like twenty six hundred words. Uh, or a couple that maybe hit around that long, but like getting over that is pretty much impossible. And which is under it's a paper. They, they you know it's not what newspapers generally do. So doing things that are more in a magazine format, like the Monique Feely thing, which those two parts combined were probably like twenty five thousand words. Um, yeah, doing things like that uh, is it, that's been really cool. Just being able to sort of spread my wings a bit, uh, topic wise, and really dive into stuff for them. So and and just you know and doing offbeat stuff they're into. They kind of have a an almost sort of weirder the better attitude there, which I appreciate. And again, which the no Times doubt. doesn't not do. The Times will also do a lot of sort of, you know, even stuff like Christian Guerin or doing stuff. I've written stuff about like, why is the US Open Court blue? Or like talking, like going deep dive into like color theory and stuff like that uh, with uh, the Times. So 
not trying to knock the times at all here, but like um, just getting more space to do things and get a little more uh, stylistic uh, freedom and space freedom, and length freedom uh, from Racket's been very cool. See, I've written uh, probably about, I don't know, seven or eight things for them. Maybe, maybe like 10. I'm not sure. Uh, and across their 13 issues, working on something for the next one as well. Uh, and yeah, it's been, uh, it's been a cool place to be. Do you, is, do you have any kind of big project that's in the works? Do you have a, do you have a book, a novel? Uh, nothing that is really at a point worth sharing yeah. currently. No, I will say no. Um, would like to, and that's something obviously, especially if, you know, the rest of this year's tour is off, uh, at time certainly to, to figure that out and to get more into that. Um, I just recently this week published, I'm not sure when this is going up, but I've just recently this week published an NCR episode, uh, about the sort of music episode we did that was sort of the conclusion to the contest we held for tennis music that had been like four years of, you know, procrastinating and, and stewing over that. Um, that finally I was able to bear down and have time to do it the way I wanted to do it uh, in this quarantine time. So that was cool. Get it? That was like a big albatross off my neck that I just accomplished and Sarah wise. I read that you said that you uh, had to slice together 200, uh, you said there's like 200 uh, different yeah. audio tracks. Oh yeah, no, that's a very, very complicated, <laughs> like if you hear, if, you listen, if anyone listens to that episode, like it's like a ton, a ton of montages of different kinds of tennis music and different categories and interviews and there's background music happening and results clips and so it's a it is a complicated uh quilt of an episode so it really was my uh my computer my laptop previous to this one really struggled under the weight of running that many that much let's move into our fourth set this is what we call the 10 ball scramble uh, i say something you just say what comes into your mind it's not a deep dive you ready yeah the best tournament to work. Oof. Uh, I'll say. Ooh. I'll say Cincinnati. Why? I like Cincinnati a lot for. Um, Cincinnati. All the players are there before U.S. Open, and that's pretty great for getting access. They do the all access hour, which is good. Uh, there's a bunch of good interview spaces for one on one things like that. The player lounge is pretty accessible there, which is which is useful for media for at least for. Itwa, who can get access there, which is like the sort of International Tennis Writers Association. Um, there's, you know, it's not the easiest. There's obviously not a lot of uh, what most people call culture in Mason, Ohio, right? Uh, in terms of like things to do there or like great restaurants to eat at per se. And it is an issue with restaurants not staying open late enough. It's a real issue in Mason. But um, for one, like we finish like late after a night session, it's often sure. find a hard, hard to find food afterwards. But for just being on site, the media center is great. The volunteers are great. Pete Holterman, who runs the room there, does a very good job with that. Um, they, yeah, it's so, a it's a pretty determined to work at. So just for purely being on site, uh, Cincinnati would be my answer. I was in a good time. Also, good so I was uh, the best tournament that you think is for the fan for the best fan experience. I'm tempted to say Cincinnati here again. I do think that Cincinnati is a great tournament for fans. Uh, you get. Pretty, it's certainly cheaper than Indy Wells or Miami in terms of doing as a trip these days, which are the other domestic tournaments. Um, and fan access to practice course is pretty good. Uh, and the you know you can see all the big players at again a fraction of like U.S. Open prices. So that's pretty good. Obviously, like players pull out sometimes if they like win Canada, they often pull out of Cincinnati. So that part's not ideal. Is there anything in, like it, Rafa? Is there anything internationally that you think is uh, a great a great experience? I always thought Rome was really Rome. Rome, Rome yeah, Rome was the other one I've been thinking about here. Rome, yeah, if you can get to Rome, Rome is 
my Europe, Europe recommendation for sure. I love Rome. And that goes into like having really, you know, good Italian food on site and things like that. So Rome uh, is definitely a bucket list tournament should be for, for fans. I think it's a better tournament to go to than like the French Open. Let's say. I agree. Uh, the best tournament that you think is for the, for the player, the player experience. Uh, probably Australian Open. I think I think they get a lot of uh, money and perks from Australia. Mm. They get like unlimited food. They get pretty good prize money. They get like a travel stipend and stuff. I mean, Australia, that tournament makes bank, and they give a lot of it back to the players to keep the players uh, entertained. That said, there are drawbacks to Australia for sure, tournament wise. Like they have like the um, the cameras that are in the hallways, always watching them. I don't like those. I don't think the players like those either. That's not positive. Um, the heat stuff and their sort of insensitivity to that and to like the air quality this year during qualifying, that's not positive either. Um, so Australia is a, is an answer. Wimbledon, I think a lot of players really, really like, there are a lot, plenty of players who do not like grass and who do not like the all white rule and who have sort of, whose, whose vibe does not match Wimbledon. And Wimbledon also gets points off for um, having the qualifying at a pretty crappy spot in Roehampton offsite. So, you know, I can kind of argue for and against like, almost every tournament, which is a problem that's, I've sort of <laughs> been on. That's, again, the thing with, like, uh, like I was saying with the, you know, Flyers fandom before. But, like, it is, you know, all my sort of loyalties or whatever or romanticizing of tournaments, uh, I'm kind of too close to it now to really uh, to be able to see. Everything is just kind of gray, sure. really, for me. I'm surprised you didn't say Indian Wells. For some reason, I felt like the players... Wells, Indian Wells is a good answer. That's a good answer. The players um, go crazy for Indian Wells. It seems like they stay down there for a month if they can. Yeah, no, it's, it's, they can get there early because there's not a lot of, of big tournament. Or you can you can easily skip a tournament in late February, let's say, yeah. like Acapulco or lose early in Acapulco or Dubai if you want to play one of those. Yeah. And then come to Indian Wells pretty early. Um, and yeah, if you like golfing and the weather's great. Uh, I actually think the tennis in Indian Wells is pretty bad. I don't like the playing conditions there at all. I think the combination of the really thin air and the really gritty slow courts makes for some weird tennis. It's, inter- so, it's interesting actually, you said. It's interesting you yeah. say that because Chuck Adams, uh, who's uh, a mm-hmm. friend and has been on my show, he's got to top thirty in the world. Said said that it it took multiple days to get used to playing in Indian Wells. Yeah, that even it, with my that crappy, the ball flies. Even with my crappy playing, um, when I've, I've actually hit on those courts a few times yeah. at Indy Wells, and I look way worse than I normally do out there. I mean, like, I just feel like I never played tennis before when I'm out there. Um, it's it's pretty bad uh, conditions wise. So I have respect for a lot of the players who can't. I remember I had I played one day and then I, I posted something on Twitter about it, and, and I think Stan Wawrinka actually I can name drop quickly here was like asking me like what I thought about playing out there. He was talking to me about he saw my tweet or whatever, and I was like, yeah, I don't like this at all. And he was saying the same thing that he try, finds it really tough to adapt to. Eventually, he did. I think yeah. like maybe a couple years later, he made the final there once. Yeah. Um, but yeah, it's not a uh, it's not for me a natural playing conditions at all, and I don't think the matches there are very good as a result of that. I don't think there's many classic Indian Wells matches to be had. I think like Miami has much better matches. Favorite book, tennis book? No, 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 um, any book, any book, any book. Yeah, yeah, hey. yeah, yeah. Um, okay, that's a bigger question. Favorite book? Uh, you can say tennis book, whatever you feel. It's a ten ball scramble. You do whatever you want. I mean, I really like I really like Venus Envy by John Wertheim, which I just did for the NCR book club. Uh, that's my favorite tennis book, probably, even if it is a little bit you know gossipy and trashy, but I think in, in fun ways. Um, I non tennis book, I'll say To Kill a Mockingbird. Favorite writer? 
Um, favorite writer. I really like uh, Drew McGarry. Drew McGarry. Favorite sports writer. I'll say I'll say John Wertheim again. I mean, I John Wertheim is the tennis writer who I read the most growing up for sure, and I know that will make him feel old if I say that. But uh, I was in high school when he was already working for SI for sure, and I would read his uh, mailbags and stuff religiously. And so he kind of like he was the tennis writer. Not that I was like ever really consciously thinking like I want to be like John, um, but he's his way of engaging with fans and with keeping the sport sort of fun. I think really kind of matches my attitude towards it as well. Shout out to L. John. Uh, you know, great to see him on 60 Minutes and his mm-hmm. group. You know, it's just amazing. Um, yeah. Where do you go for tennis news? How do you ingest your tennis news? Or does it just come to you because you're Ben Rothenberg from the New York Times? <laughs> yeah, it just comes to me by special delivery. No, I um, I think the first, you know, I check Twitter sadly way too much it's like an itch that's always there ready to be scratched in my pocket twitter um so usually things will float to the surface on on twitter occasionally like for more obscure things for my own reporting i'll get you know tips from people or people will message me more privately being like hey you should look into this or this that sometimes leads places sometimes it doesn't so uh yeah so I think Twitter's and that Twitter would lead everywhere. I mean, I follow pretty much all of the, all the, all the tennis writers who are out there really covering the sport. I think I follow just about all of them on Twitter. And yeah, so Twitter is my basic answer there. Where do you, do you, do you save your credentials and where do you keep them if you do? Yes, I do save my credentials. Um, I'm currently looking, you can't see how people are listening to this audio format, but like I have a sort of hook um, or hanger in my closet that has all the credentials on them. So I've always wanted, whenever I like, if there ever is a clear end date to my tennis coverage, or even before that, I guess, I would love to make some sort of like, you know, art installation or collage or something out of all the credentials, or even just like make like a sort of like woven tapestry of lanyards. So you currently, but, but I do have a lot of credentials. So yeah. you, you currently have a, a, a credential hanger. Yeah. It's like a, um, like a trousers hanger. Yeah. You know, that has like the, the bar yeah. that you can take off and off. So like all the credentials are sort of hooked into that and like closed back up. So it's a and then that's one thing. And then I also have like a couple of like code hooks that have tons of hangers, uh, tons of credentials hanging off them. I have yeah, probably a couple hundred credentials, I would guess. I've never counted, but yeah. a lot. Guessing at least 400. Um, your worst tennis experience well, the, the playing one that comes to mind, I'm sure this is bad because I still remember it. I was playing, I think it was just junior high, playing on my school team. We were playing against like a quote-unquote rival school from like down the street. And we were playing an eight-game pro set. And I was playing probably like number three or four singles, which I usually was in, in middle school. Uh, and I was losing, I think, I think it was just, I think it was only, quote-unquote, only six zero six love in this eight game pro set losing six love and then i like fought all the way back to get to six all and then i lost eight six and for some reason like this defeat has stuck with me you know nearly 20 years later like i was so mad that i like put in all this effort to fighting back in this match just to still lose anyway it was so disgusting to me that particular loss and um yeah, so that that one random loss. I just remember like crying at the bus stop, waiting to go home. Uh, later that day, join the was, club. Was, join the club. Yeah. It's good. Misery loves company. Um, your your greatest tennis experience. 
gosh, I mean, there's so many career-wise that have been so cool. I've been to so many, you know, Grand Slam finals and been at tournaments and been, you know, talking to all these great, I mean, that's, you know, people sort of ask, oh, you're a tennis, and they're like, oh, so you have you ever, like, you know, have you, like, ever seen Serena Williams? And, like, <laughs> yes, obviously I have at this point. But still, like, that, that's sort of, like, it's so cool, people. I don't, I try not to take that for granted, that it is very cool that I get to be around these players um, who I watched so much as a fan growing up and obviously and spoiled to have come up when I did, that these people who literally, I mean, Venus Williams, I mentioned watching in 97, that she's still on tour 23 years later. That's crazy. Totally um, amazing. So I, I, I came up at a very specific time in my career where, like, everyone who was good when I was still more or less in high school, I mean, like, Rafa, you know, won his first slam, like, the weekend I graduated from high school, I think, the French Open. Um, so, yeah, so that's pretty wild that he's still around uh, and still very, very relevant in the sport. Uh, well, when the sport comes back, he will be um, right now, you know, 15 years later. So, so yeah, so being around them, just sort of soaking that up has been pretty cool and getting to go all the places and lots of those moments. I still can feel, you know, even if I'm less, certainly less like uh, invested in one player or another winning generally uh, as a reporter, the electricity of the moment still, that still gets me for sure. Let's move into our fifth and final set. We call this the king of the court. If you could be the king of tennis, and make a change in the sport with just a swing of the racket without any real, you know, aggravation, what would it be? Yeah, because this is the fifth set, I feel obligated to stay on brand here and say there shouldn't be fifth sets. <laughs> I think that uh, best of three is a wonderful format um, and would love to see the men get to play shorter matches. I think it'd be great for everyone involved at Grand Slams. It would really reinvigorate doubles. It would... Um, make for more players being able to get on court and it would, you know, keep players from, it would turn the game into being less physical. I feel like tennis is too, men's tennis particularly has gotten too physical so many times with these slow surfaces and slow conditions. Um, I think best three would, would cut down on that a bit. And, um, well, you've yeah, referred, so. you've referred to some of it as carnage. Um, yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Where, yeah. where, where we're, and I think the point is, is that, these guys are playing these crazy five-set matches in the fourth round in the quarters, and then there's walkovers in, in the semis or blowouts and such, and, and that's really we've your that, point. We've had that several – well, I have many points on this, but that is one of my points for sure. And so we've had several times in the last uh, few years where you know playing best-of-five matches has really caught up to somebody late in the tournament, and we've had a really, really dud semifinal, let's say, like Australian Open a couple years ago, right? We had – Edmund and Chung both being, who both made very surprising runs to the semis. And they're year. totally dead in the um, water. And, and, and it was a complete waste of a round of the semifinals once they got there because they were so dead in the water, right? They were just not competitive in those rounds. And those, especially in Australia, are like standalone one match night session events and best of five format undermined them. So, I mean, I would be happy to compromise uh, to start. And to like make the first four rounds best of three, and then go to best of five quarter semis finals, and people were ever more comfortable with that. Um, and you know Wimbledon, for example, uh, I don't think they need it as badly because matches move much faster there uh, on grass. So could start the other Grand Slams for sure. But um, yeah, and I, I but it's not that I want shorter matches per se. I just think there's so much dead weight in these matches in the in the early sets where like I've seen it so many times where like. Uh, Nadal, I think he lost a set at the U.S. Open last year. I want to say like Taro Daniel in the second yeah, round, maybe. Sure. 
And like nobody thought that mattered. Like no one was like, oh boy, Nadal's in trouble. We're all like, oh, Nadal has plenty of time to get out of this. Right. And of course he did. And it was just kind of a wasted hour, honestly. Like I like best of three also because the stakes are real from the beginning. Like if someone loses a set in best of three, it matters. They are suddenly on real meaningful upset alert. They have to play well, where the men are just sort of allowed to sort of lollygag and have these like really low stakes, low important sets. And um, I don't think that's good for fans. I don't think it's good for for TV or anybody. Um, I think it's just filler, and I wish it would go away. I think people would not miss it at all very quickly. Or almost, I think people would really be surprised at how little they missed best of five if it went away. And I really do think you could also do something with doubles, like I mentioned, uh, to get top players to play more doubles. I think you could mandate that in some way uh, if you want to save doubles. I do think doubles uh, is pretty relevant right now in the sport. Is, is there... Um a surmountable uh, way for the WTA and the ATP to the tours to combine? Uh, well, there seems to be energy in that direction uh, for the first time or the most that I can remember in, uh, in my time in tennis um, right now with Federer and Nadal's pseudo casual tweeting about that. I think that, uh, yeah, maybe I think there's just, it's, it's such an organizational, you know, corporate challenge more than anything. Those are different companies having to merge. And so it would just come down to doing any sort of, you know, merger acquisition type, uh, you know, boardroom, you know, level mediation and negotiation for it to happen. Um, is it, is it, is it, people talk about it. Is it, is it positive? I think in theory, yes. Um, but I think WTA would need to be really um, very demanding in their negotiation to make sure that they were not at all um, taken advantage of here. I think they should want to be in it only if they really can be fully equal partners, getting fully equal pay and all those things. And I think they have reasons to be skeptical of that. Hey, man, I asked you who you keep your eye on for information. And, and you know, for me, it's you. I just want to thank you very much for taking the time to talk with me. For sure. I guess enjoy. I guess enjoy the uh, enjoy the downtime. Thank you very much. I am try, I'm trying to, and I hope you're doing well too, Craig. Thanks. Thanks okay, for man. Me. Ben Rothenberg, you are released. Appreciate it. Huge thank you to Ben Rothenberg. We'd like to thank Sergio Tacchini. See what they're doing at sergiotacchini.com and use my code Craig30 in all caps at checkout been thinking about becoming a patron of the show now is the time i've just posted new members only premium content head on over to patreon.com slash c shap tennis pod that's patreon.com slash c s h a p tennis pod also i want to thank illust ever sunglasses for my new shades they are all handcrafted in italy they are sweet and they are offering 25 percent off of the entire website Max Loeb edited the show. Our music is by Brian Senti. We'll be back next time with more of the most interesting voices in the sport. Until then, I'm Craig Shapiro, and you are released.